0: Good morning. Let me uh, put you at ease. I'm not going to be doing announcements again. Uh, We're going to be looking at God's word together this morning, and uh, that's a great joy and a privilege for me to be with you and to be able to share with you this morning. I have to begin by asking a little grace of the Logos class, the class that I teach uh, most weeks. Um, uh, A few weeks ago, we, we took a deep look into Psalm 51. Actually, took a couple weeks looking at it. And um, and as I began to prepare for this message this morning, that psalm kept coming back to me over and over again. As the Lord has impressed upon my heart the importance of the issue of 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 confession, and so uh, I'm bringing that same material, a lot of the same material, uh, to you today. And for those of you who are in my class that may be here today, I would just ask to uh, uh, follow along. You're going to hear some new new things, and also you can let me know if I get off course or miss anything that I covered before and keep me back on track. So um, this morning, uh, as we look at this incredible passage of Psalm 51, and I encourage you to turn there now, we're going to read it in just a moment, I want us to be thinking about the issue of confession. I would suggest to you that nothing weakens the church of Christ more than unconfessed sin sin that creeps in through the doors and the windows and all over the place and comes into our lives and that we just ignore, that we don't deal with in some way. We understand that uh, we are all sinful and broken people. We all get that. Those of us, and I think that's most of us here today, that have confessed the Lord Jesus as our Savior and Lord, acknowledged Him, understand that His blood is sufficient to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future. Praise God. And David understood that when he When he wrote this psalm, he he said, uh, as we'll see, uh, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He understood that, that he was a sinner from birth. And we understand that even after coming to Christ and saving faith and seeking to grow in him, that we all still sin. That no one lives a perfect and sinless life. But that Christ's blood shed upon the cross for us is sufficient to cover all of that. But does that mean because we confessed our sins once to our Heavenly Father when we came to Christ that that's sufficient for all time? Do we not need to acknowledge our sin beforehand? I was thinking about this and uh, realizing that uh, the old, uh, a guy once said, yeah, I don't need to keep telling my wife over and over again I, I love her. I told her once when we got married and that's all she needs to know. I haven't changed my mind. Will that go over real well, guys? No, no I don't, thank you, ladies not going to work is it what, what makes us think that just because we've asked God and we've confessed our sins to him that we never have to acknowledge our sin again not unto salvation but unto restoration we understand that our salvation is secured once for all praise God So as we look at Psalm 51, we're going to explore why confession of sin is so important for the church, so important for our own personal spiritual health. Stand with me, if you would, please turn to Psalm 51. We're going to read verses 1 through 17, and we're going to focus this morning on verses 1 through 12, and then on verse 17. Follow along, if you would, as we read. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifices, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the shed blood of the Lord Jesus who cleanses us from all sin. We thank you, Lord, that you desire fellowship with your people. And Lord, we pray that even as we explore your word today and this issue of the need for confession that you would reveal to us, Lord, your loving kindness anew. And help us, Lord, to be a people who come clean before you that we might be clean in you. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, perhaps after Psalm 23 and Psalm 1 and Psalm 100 and maybe your favorite psalm, Psalm 51 is one of the best known of all psalms. It's unique in Scripture in that it is most explicit in pouring out an individual, in this case, King David's heart of contrition and repentance. It's a plea for forgiveness and restoration after David's egregious sin of adultery and his murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, as recorded in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Maybe one of the greatest understatements that we could ever find in Scripture, at least it comes across that way, is in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 27, where it says, the thing which David had done displeased the Lord. David's sin against Uriah was especially grievous. Now, some suggested that Bathsheba was equally to blame with David, that maybe she kind of seduced him by bathing on the roof in his sight. But that in no way justifies David's sin. We understand that. But it's sin against Uriah was shameless, premeditated murder that he tried to cover up and trying to cover up his affair with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And he went so far to even commission his, his general, his, his chief of staff, Uriah, uh, Joab, to uh, put Uriah out on the front line of battle where he was sure to be killed so that David wouldn't have to deal with the issue of his sin against Bathsheba so he compounded his sin it's one of the most tragic stories of all of all scripture and yet david's confession and his plea for restoration is one of the greatest examples for us that there is no sin that is so great that god's love for us is not greater still amen that is the great story that we find here in psalm 51 it's a psalm that every repentant sinner must cling to for understanding of both the need for repentance and confession and the hope and assurance of full restoration with the Heavenly Father. The psalm follows on, Psalm 32, where David addressed his sin with Bathsheba also. It probably was written first, but in Psalm 32, David said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. I want to be that guy. How about you? When we come to saving faith in Christ, we know that that's true for us for all of eternity, and nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Pastor Mike preached on that a couple weeks ago, did he not? We're secure in our faith in Him. But we also need to understand there are things that come into our lives, sin specifically, that separate us from our sweet fellowship with the Heavenly Father, that in some ways make us estranged from Him. And it's those issues that the Lord wants us to deal with as believers and come clean before Him. What's particularly notable about this psalm that I want to point out in, as we begin is who's missing. David never mentions Bathsheba or Uriah or Joab, for that matter, though they're the ones against whom he directly sinned. But in this psalm, they're not the focus of David's confession. Notice verse 4. What's he say? He says, Against you, you only have I sinned, speaking to the Lord. David understood that his sin was first against the Heavenly Father. So as we look at this psalm today, I want to look at four elements of the psalm. The first two in some detail and the next two just going to cover more quickly. The first is in verses 1 and 2, the plea for, for pardon. Plea for pardon. Secondly, the purity of confession. We find those in verses 3 to 6. And then in verses 7 to 12, the cry for cleansing. and verses 13 to 17, David's longing for restoration. David's longing for restoration. Let's look first at David's plea for pardon. His plea for God's mercy in verses 1 and 2. He says, pretty simply, comes before the Lord. Lord, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David knew God was a merciful God. He had experienced that already in his life, and now he needed it more than ever. David knew what he deserved. He understood, even before it was written, that the wages of sin are what? Are death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's what David was looking forward to. He knew God was a God of mercy. And he wasn't coming to God asking for a reduced sentence. He was asking for full and complete pardon. As if he had never sinned at all you think about it, it's an incredibly bold and audacious request, thinking we are to come before the most holy God and asking him to treat us as if we'd never sinned at all. Really? Do we even ask one another for that kind of forgiveness? Are we even able to give that kind of forgiveness? That is God's model for us, and David understood that. And Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations chapter 3 that wonderful, familiar passage. My soul continually remembers it. And he's talking about the wormwood and the gall of his sinfulness. And he says, I am bowed down within me. This is Lamentations chapter 3. I'm reading verse 21 now. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The great news is that we can't sin more than God can forgive. His mercies are new every morning. We don't use up God's forgiveness. It never runs out. And we need to lean upon that. And notice here, he says, Have mercy upon me, how according to your steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. God's love never changes. It's not affected in any way by our sinfulness, or for that matter, our good works. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing that we can do to cause Him to love us less. Isn't that great? God's love is immutable. It's an immutable quality of His holy being. And it's the only reason why we could ever expect that God can forgive even our most egregious sin. Just as God loves us with a complete love, so is forgiveness, so he forgives us with a complete forgiveness. Nothing holding back. That's one of the great hopes of the faith. God forgives us completely. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, again, that familiar passage. For I am sure, I'm convinced, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God. Yeah, you know that. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. As we look at verses 1 and 2 here, three words in particular, actually six words, really jump out at us. The first thing that we see here is that David is asking the Lord to blot out his transgressions. Secondly, we see to wash him from his iniquities. And thirdly, to cleanse him from his sin so you have the blotting the washing and the cleansing and you have the transgressions and the iniquity and the sin looking first at the transgressions and iniquity and sin transgressions in the original these are three separate words in the hebrew and transgression speaks of intentional sin those sins that sometimes we simply choose to do david i'm sure he listed first because that's what he chose he chose to sin and he knew, even as he sinned, that he was sinning. I don't know about you, but have you ever intentionally sinned? I know I have. I had to stop and really get, try to get honest with myself on this one. Um, have there been times when I just said, yep, I'm going to do it? And the answer I came up with is, actually, I didn't have to dig very far for examples. to give you one. I can remember plenty of times when I decided I knew I was going to get angry, typically it's with my wife. Guys, you don't have this issue, I know, so just, it's just me. But, you know, so I know I'm going to get angry. I feel it coming, and then I decide I'm just going to go ahead and get angry. It feels good. <laughs> and I do it, and I make it ten times worse. Guys, have you ever done that? Ladies, don't respond. It's a guy question. Guy question. There are times when we are simply in rebellion and we choose to sin. The idea of this word here is to cross over into forbidden territory. Kind of like Caesar at the Rubicon. He knew if he crossed that he was going to declare war against the Senate in Rome. And he did it. There are times when we simply choose to cross that Rubicon of sin. Then he talks about iniquity. Iniquity really means perversion, the depravity of our very nature. That's why David later on said, I was brought forth in iniquity. He knew that he was sinful in his very nature. And then he talks about sin here, uses the word sin, which literally means perversion. Talks about the depravity. Um, Excuse me, it talks about falling short of the mark of God's perfect glory. Sin is exactly that. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us lives a perfect life. Each and every one of us sin. Most of us manage to pull it off daily. Pretty much every one of us, right? And think about it. There are sins that we know about, that we're quite aware of, and then there are sins that we never even realize we've sinned, but we know we fall short of God's glory. Not just in our nature, but we just have an impure thought, a wrong motive, a wrong intent. We do something, we never even give it a thought. Now, I would hope that we could learn to be more sensitive and deal with those issues right away, wouldn't you? Don't you? I hope so. But sometimes we just sin. Wouldn't it be horrible for us to know the fullness of God's forgiveness that we had to remember every single one of our sins? Confess them to the Lord? No. Praise God, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, uh, how much? From all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. God has dealt with all of our sin, the things that we know and the things that we don't know. God wants us to be mindful of our sin. He wants us to come before him and confess our sins to him. You know, um, David says here, first, blot out my transgressions. David wanted his sins completely gone. The idea of blotting out here means literally to obliterate it means to cover up in such a way that no one could ever uncover it. It's, it's uh, for the older folks here, it's nothing that whiteout could ever do. <laughs> you know, this is the kind of blotting out. You hold the paper to the light and nothing comes through. And this idea is understood, is, is repeated throughout this, uh, this psalm. You look at verse two. He says, wash me thoroughly from his iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, in verse 2. In verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, blot out all my iniquities. He says it again. And in verse 10, create in me a clean, a pure heart. David understood his desperate need for mercy. I wish I understood my need for mercy more. That had taken it for granted. David understood that there was nothing that he could do to atone for his sin, that he was helpless before the Lord. And maybe it took the really big sin for him to come to that understanding. Well, the same is true for all of our sin. And as horrible as his sin was, and it was about as bad as it gets, God can forgive even that. Well, I don't want to gloss over the fact that consequences may linger. They certainly did in David's case. And for generations, the sword never left the house of David. But forgiveness isn't about undoing the temporal consequences of sin. Although sometimes God, in his great mercy, does just that. But no, the the idea of confession is around restoration. It's around renewal of our our right spirit within us. And before our Heavenly Father and ultimately with one another. And when we go through life, or even a period of time, when we do not confess our sins on an ongoing basis before our Heavenly Father, even as believers, there are real consequences that follow that also. Not just the consequence of the sin, estranged relationships, broken hearts, the real relationships with the Heavenly Father. First is, when we sin and we don't confess, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. We're told in the scriptures, Paul tells the Corinthians, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit dwells within every believer. And we're instructed that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, when we go on willfully sinning and trampling upon the very grace of God, The Holy Spirit is grieved. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're secure in our salvation. And yet we can cause the one, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, who dwells within us to be grieved, to weep, as it were, bitterly for our sin." And how do we do that? By willfully sinning and rarely, if ever, repenting. If you go back and look at that Ephesians chapter 4 passage, you'll see that the list of all the things that grieve the Holy Spirit of God when they're left unconfessed, anger and malice and stealing and dishonesty and corrupting speech and bitterness and clamor and malice and unkindness and unwillingness to forgive one another, even as Christ has forgiven us. So we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Secondly, it quenches the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it simply says, do not quench the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, if, if I remember, uh, this goes back to my days as a student at Biola, I remember a professor, I just stuck in my mind all these years. Quenching the Holy Spirit of God is like throwing a wet blanket on his work, on his work of comforting the work of leading us into righteousness, the work of teaching us all truth. When we don't confess our sins before him, we quench his work, we throw a wet blanket upon it. And if we leave it unconfessed long enough, our hearts become hardened, and our consciences are seared, and we become less and less sensitive to sin in our life, and we tolerate more and more. finally, unconfessed sin estranges us from our Heavenly Father. It's one of the reasons why we're told we are not to walk in a manner unworthy of the gospel of Christ. Not just that we don't bring shame upon Him, but that we not estrange ourselves from Him. And we don't walk in the sweet fellowship of His love and His grace. Instead, we walk even as believers with guilty hearts. And hardened hearts and seared consciences. Secondly, I want to look at the purity of confession that we find here in verses 3 through 6. David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What David is getting at here is that God knows what goes on in his heart and David is saying I want to be honest about where I stand before the Lord. I need to be honest about my sins. David first said, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He was weighted down with the burden of sin. David had, at this point, a very tender heart. And he understood that his sin was against the Heavenly Father and the Heavenly Father alone. David understood that he was in violation of god's direct law he didn't have to dig around for what his sin was he knew that he had violated the sixth commandment you shall not murder And he had violated the seventh commandment you shall not commit adultery and he had violated the tenth commandment you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife his sin was ever before him and he understood lord it is against you and you only have i sinned and what is and i've done evil and done what is evil in your sight. We emphasize a great, a lot about the need for us to confess our sins to one another and indeed we should. James uh, tells us very clearly in James 1, 17, confess your sins one to another. We understand that. But we first need to understand that our sin is against the Lord himself first and foremost. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, God spoke through the prophet Nathan, and he made it absolutely clear that Nathan had transgressed against him. The Lord didn't, or Nathan, the Lord didn't speak through Nathan to tell David that, hey, you've sinned against Bathsheba, you know, you've sinned against Uriah, you've sinned against Joab. Nathan told him, no, you have sinned against the Lord. Let me give you a little hint of this. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Looking at verse nine, it says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? David despised the word of the Lord, to do evil what is in his sight. You've struck struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife, and they've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And then he says later on in verse ten, You have despised me. And then down in verse fourteen, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. God spoke to David through Nathan, and his emphasis was, you've despised the word of the Lord, you've despised me, you've utterly scorned the Lord. At its heart, that is the rebellion of sin. And that is what we must deal with first when we confess our sins. Why didn't David mention his need to ask forgiveness of Bathsheba? or Joab, or Uriah? Well, there isn't any record of David asking forgiveness directly. And I think it is because David understood that his sin was first and foremost against the Lord. Asking forgiveness of others should come absolutely. We're told that. We're told very strongly in God's Word. In fact, one of the very very first sermons that Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, he said, "Look, if you're getting ready to make an offering to the Lord and you remember that someone has something against you, first go and be reconciled, and then come back and make your offering. We shouldn't pretend to worship the Lord with a pure heart when we have sin that we is open and unconfessed to a fellow believer, but God un- wants us to understand that our sin is first and foremost against Him, and that we should confess to Him first and then go and confess our sins to one another. I think it's really important that we understand that. That's the order that we find here with David. I know that we uh, teach our kids very carefully when they're growing up is when they sin against somebody that they're to go and ask, say they're sorry and ask forgiveness, right? Right. I can think of a few examples. I, let me pick a grandkid, anyone. I got plenty. And let's take Samuel for a minute. I picked on Samuel first service, so I'll get him again. Samuel, you've just punched out your little brother. He's five and his younger brother's four. And uh, you just punched out Elijah. You need, to, you need to go and say you're sorry and you need to ask him to forgive you. Have you ever done that? I, I sure have. But one thing that we don't think about as often as perhaps we should is where was Samuel's, in this case, my five-year-old grandson, where was the sin first and foremost? It was rebellion against God. Maybe we should teach our children to say, uh, Lord, I've sinned against you. I've rebelled against you. You don't want me to live that way and act that way. Will you forgive me? I acknowledge my sin before you and then go ask forgiveness of the one against whom we have sinned. David is, I think David was truly contrite. There's no question about it. He asked God to give him a contrite heart. Um, And so I'm pretty confident that David at the appropriate time asked forgiveness of Bathsheba and and uh, perhaps even Joab. But you know, this is a good thing for us to remember also. David never had a chance to ask forgiveness of Uriah. He was dead. There are some sins that we commit that we never get to ask the one we've sinned against for forgiveness. Praise God that we can ask our Heavenly Father and He and He alone will forgive us and that is sufficient. Notice here in verse 4 now. He says, Against you and you only by sin and done what is evil in your sight, and so so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What David is saying is, Lord, you have absolute authority to deal with my sin as you see fit. There's nothing I can do to assuage my guilt. There's nothing I can do to make me worthy of your forgiveness. You grant your forgiveness because of your mercy alone. And so the Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The idea behind this is that everyone, even if everyone in the world, starting with those most entrusted with the very oracles of God, were unfaithful to God, God would still be faithful and he would still be justified in his dealing with sin. God's righteousness is not dependent upon or changed by the unrighteousness of man. And so God's holiness fully justifies his judgment. David understood that. David understood quite simply, as Paul said later in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is what? Death. And he understood God was just in judging him and he was asking mercy notice now the third point here the cry for cleansing the cry for cleansing beginning in verse seven purge me with hyssop and i shall be clean wash me and i shall be whiter than snow and i'm going to skip down to verse nine hide your face from my sins blot out my iniquities create in me a clean heart O god and renew a right spirit within me Restore to me, cast me not away from your presence, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. David's desire was that he be cleansed and that he be cleansed absolutely, wholly and completely with nothing held back. David gives the impression, I believe is true, that he was consumed with guilt at this point. That's why he wrote in Psalm 32, "Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man in whom against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit." The idea is that he wanted to be made pure. You know, he talks about um, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was the, a branch from a bush that the priests used to sprinkle blood on the sacrifices. Give me perfect cleansing, Lord. Make me, wash me, and that I might be whiter than snow. In Psalm 32, David said, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David was literally wasting away. Unconfessed sin not only estranges us, grieves the Holy Spirit, it not only estranges us from our Heavenly Father, but it has real physical consequences. It causes us to waste away. His bones wasted away. And so he asked the Lord to hide his face from him, from his sins, to blot out again his iniquities. And in verse 10, to create in him a clean heart, a right spirit. Not just forgiveness for the sense of being relieved from guilt. No, but a plea for a pure heart, a heart that is grieved by sin. Lord, not only help me to sin, not only show your mercy to me, but Lord, give me a grief for my sin, a longing to be reconciled with you. David understood that his confession had no merit in and of itself. It added nothing to to God's grace and it made him not one iota and more worthy of forgiveness. The whole idea here behind create is a recognition that God alone provides clean cleansing. The idea here is create. The Hebrew word is bara. It means to create out of nothing, ex nihilo. David had nothing to offer. God and God alone would create that heart within me within him and so he says cast me not away from your presence take not your Holy Spirit from me the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament times came and went upon people upon God's people David was fearful that the Holy Spirit would leave him and so he said take not your Holy Spirit from me Jesus told us in the New Testament the church today that's us that uh, he would send a helper the Holy Spirit to comfort us. And so we are the temple, as I said earlier, of the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to worry about the Holy Spirit leaving us as believers, but we certainly need to be worried about quenching him and his work within us. The last thing I want to look at here is the longing for restoration. David's plea to be fully and completely restored. Look down in verse 16. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David understood that when he was clean before the Lord that he would be in a position to be used of the Lord. That's why he said, I'll teach, then I'll teach transgressors your ways. I'll be able to be a spokesman for you because I'm clean before you. Think about it. Why would we want to do the work of God when we're mired in our own sin? When we haven't even confessed our sin before him. David understood that. He says, when I know the fullness of your forgiveness, I can be used as your instrument. And so he said, Lord, help me to offer to you that which I could never give of myself. Give me what I need to offer you, just as everything that we give to our Heavenly Father from our material offerings, we gave this morning to the very the very core of our lives we give to God that which he's already given to us and so the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart they come from God and God alone David is essentially praying Lord break my heart with the things that break the heart of God Lord give me a sensitive heart help me to confess my sins before you that I do not get a calloused heart a seared conscience Lord, help me to be sensitive to my sin. Give me a broken heart, a contrite heart. Help me to confess my sins with true remorse, with true repentance, a genuine sorrow, and not just some sort of ritual. Let me leave you with this this morning. First, to the church, to believers, rejoice, rejoice in our forgiveness. It's full and complete. God has promised that he will forgive our sins not only those which we know about but those that we don't even know about all unrighteousness he has promised that he will take away from us and that God has forgiven us our sins even before we've ever sinned even as he told David David, uh, Dathan told David your sins are already forgiven the issue of coming before the Lord is not to tell him something new God knows our sins purpose of of confession is restoration and fellowship with our Heavenly Father for the believer. The ungrieved and unquenched work of the Holy Spirit who indwells in every one of us to be unleashed, to be released, to be renewed. Secondly, um, we need to pray specifically for a contrite heart. I think sometimes it's the hardness of our heart that keeps us from confessing our sin to the Lord. That's why in Hebrews chapter 3, in verse 13, Hebrews 3, 13, if you want to jot it down, it says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to pray for one another that we not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And one of the biggest, in fact, at the heart of deceitfulness of sin is for us to believe that we don't need to confess our sin or that we ignore our sin, and that's okay because Jesus has forgiven us, and we trample upon the very grace of God. The very thing that we need to do to confess sin keeps us from confessing sin. And the longer that we wait to confess, the harder our hearts become. Pray for a broken and contrite heart. Thirdly, make time for a specific confession. Ask the Lord to show you where, where you've sinned. Lord, show me where I've sinned. Lord, reveal to me my own brokenness. Help me not to take for granted your forgiveness. When we confess our sins to the Lord, as I've mentioned, we're not telling him anything new. God wants us to come clean before him so that we might be clean in him. That was David's prayer, O Lord, in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search Out my path and my lying down, you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord knows our ways. He knows our sins. He knows the sins before they even come out of our mouth, before they even formed as a thought in our minds. God has forgiven us. He wants us to acknowledge His forgiveness and confess our sins before Him. So David's confession was specific: "I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and You forgave the iniquity of my sin." That's why Jesus, at the very beginning of His ministry, again in that Sermon on the Mount I mentioned earlier, instructed His followers in the, in the what we call the Lord's Prayer to pray, "Forgive us our trespasses, our sins." even as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And then finally for the believer, don't go fishing. Now, Pete were in this, in, in this service. He would take offense at that, I know, Pete Roberts. But what this is behind this is this. God has told us that he has buried our sins in the depths of the deepest sea. And he has forgotten our sins. He remembers them no more. Why do we want to remember them? Why do we keep bringing them up? Why do we keep labeling, labeling ourselves and others by their sinfulness? Think about it. We see one another as the first thing that comes across your mind, the sin that that person's committed against you or against another. You know, some people are labeled by their sin for the rest of their lives. It's a shameful thing. Sometimes we label ourselves by our own sin. We carry around Deep and heavy burden of sin that we never seem to be able to forget. God in his great has, has told us that he's forgettable. He says in Micah chapter 7, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? I'm reading from Micah 7 verse 19. And then in Micah chapter 7, he says, he will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And in Psalm 103, beginning in verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It doesn't get much better or complete than that, does it? God has buried our sins. Let's not go fishing. Let's believe that God has buried them and let's let them go and move on in grace. Amen? And to those that may be in the service today, just a brief comment, but nothing more important. Those apart from Christ, you haven't received Christ as your own Savior and Lord. Not yet. We pray that that would be true for you today, that you might know the fullness of his forgiveness. That God's love and forgiveness are greater than your greatest sin. As again, David's sin was as bad as it gets and God forgave him completely. Secondly, that forgiveness comes only through Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. Anyone and everyone that is saved and ever could be saved and ever was saved is saved through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But if we walk in the light, as it says in 1 John chapter 1, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. God calls us to confess our sins, and when we confess our sins, he'll forgive us. And he will indeed cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 I'll leave you with this Paul told the Romans simply this if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved folks there is no other way but it's not complicated We confess our sins. We confess that Jesus is Lord. We believe that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen? Lord, thank you for these moments, for this time. Bless, Lord, we pray. The power of your word. Help us, Lord, to cling to your mercy to confess before you, Lord, with clean hearts that we might know the fullness of your forgiveness and the sweetness of full fellowship with you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.